This is Bishop Michael Curry, and you're listening to The Way of Love. Today's guest on The Way of Love podcast is none other than the Right Reverend Marianne Edgar Buddy, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. Bishop Buddy and I delve into her newest book, How We Learn to Be Brave, Decisive Moments in Life and Faith. Beyond learning about some of the most dramatic and personal moments when Bishop Buddy knew she was being called to courageous action, we dig deep, deep into what it means to cultivate and nurture bravery in daily life, small moments, and how we can spot the difference between ego and bravery. Bishop Buddy also asked us to consider how our failures teach us bravery when we are willing to learn from them. It's a real joy to be able to be in conversation with my colleague and good friend, um, the Right Reverend Marianne Buddy, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. Bishop Marianne, welcome. It's so good to have you with us. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you, Bishop Curry. Well, Bishop, we, we're here in part, we always want to talk to you, but we're here in part because on May the 23rd, um, your book, How We Learn to Be Brave, is going to be released um, and published. And we want to encourage everybody to go out and get a copy. It's available on all of the ways that you can get books, online, in person, your local community bookstore, independent bookstore, all the ways you get your books. Go out and get How We Learn to Be Brave. But, but it's one, the t- title is intriguing. And two, the question is, what was the catalyst for writing a book about learning to be brave? What, why, what caused you to write it? And why did you write it? Um, thank you. Um, well, and the the subtitle is actually what got me going, uh, Presiding Bishop, uh, which is Decisive Moments in Life and Faith. And I, um, I've spent a lifetime actually pondering and, and living through the ramifications, as I think all of us do, of those decisive moments in life where we would go back, if we were telling our life story, we would point to those marking events, those turning moments, those decisive conscious decisions when we step out or make a shift or decide to go deeper where we are. So I've lived that arc on a intentional and subconscious level all of my life. Um, what precipitated the book or what, what prompted the book, as you might imagine, as, as Bishop, as you know, we are sometimes afforded a, um, a moment of visibility that um, through, through actions in the wider society or through our own actions or things that come toward us. And for about, you know, a, the equivalent of Andy Warhol's 15, you know, proverbial seconds of fame. There's a lot of attention and focus on us, or we see it in the culture with other people. And so the book came about because of one such moment in my life, which has become, frankly, the thing that people say about me more than anything now. Um, And that is when the former president, Donald Trump, walked across a Lafayette Park and held a Bible in front of St. John's Church at the peak of the peaceful protests across the country um, in response to George Floyd's murder. So, and I was fortunate enough to be able to um, 
get in front of enough media immediately to say that as um, as the leader of the Diocese of Washington, I could unequivocally declare that the former president did not speak for us and that he was, in fact, assuming a spiritual mantle of authority with the Bible and the church that did not belong to him and could not justify his actions, not so much crossing the park, but forcibly removing people from the park. And even more seriously, just that afternoon, threatening to use um, military force against protesters across the country. So that was the moment, right? And for about you know, four days, um, uh-huh. I was, as often happens in these situations, I was at the center of a, of a pretty intense news cycle, right? And right. from that came an invitation to consider a book. And it was in some ways a great um, instructor because the thing about moments like that is that they come and they go, yeah. right? Yeah. They come and they go. Right. And, um, and then afterwards, um, and I've had enough of them. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm, I mean, like, like on one hand, enough of them, I can count on one hand, but I've learned that if you get addicted to the attention of those moments, right. you can get confused about what the nature of real leadership is or what real courage is. Right. And so when I was given the opportunity to write a book, I thought that's what I want to write about. Uh-huh. I want to write about what life teaches us about courage through every moment. And then also to <laughs> dissect more deeply those really decisive moments uh-huh. when we know that we're making a decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why the decide was like, we're conscious of it. Right. Um, and it's a stepping into a space that is beyond us. And so as people of faith, we can speak of it in religious terms, and I do. Um, but they're universal experiences, right? You don't have to be a person of faith to understand them. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to amplify those moments and also provide the, you know, all the moments leading up to them and all the moments that follow as part of the arc of a courageous life. So, so tell me, I mean, you're actually speaking as much on kind of the macro as well as the micro, kind of on the on a more public level. But you're also talking about on a more private, personal kind of daily life level. Can you say more about that? Um, I can because um, as I, as with most people, mm-hmm. I probably with all people, the majority of those decisive moments in my life have been personal. Okay. They haven't been public. Mm-hmm. I've had a few public ones, mm-hmm. um, but most of them have been personal. And, um, and some decisive and with significant ramifications for the people around me. In fact, I think all of them have ramifications for the people around us because we are social animals. But uh, when I think about the decisive moments in my life, I have about four or five that I can point to that set helped determine the course of my life. Uh-huh. And um, and that's what I started to think about. And and so I divided the book into into chapters according to those kinds of moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, um, and all of them are personal and some of them are some of them can be public. And I I also include a lot of stories about public people that I really admire, mm-hmm. both because of the public positions that they've taken or the decisions that they've made, but also the personal struggles that they had right you know the 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 way their arc of their lives went so for example uh, the first chapter is probably the most recognizable because it's those moments when we feel the call to leave where we are 
and go somewhere else. And often that place where we're called to go is beyond our sight or beyond our ability to, like we're moving toward a horizon or we're moving toward a destination, but we won't, we don't know exactly where it is or what the implications will be of our leaving. So it's the classic hero or heroine's journey, right? You know, leaving home, leaving someplace safe and going to a foreign land, going to a new horizon. Um, and that the leaving means leaving all that is familiar and moving towards something unknown, which requires tremendous courage. Yeah. And I and it, it happens early in life for most of us because it is part of the developmental process of the human species. It has tremendous implications for our development of our identity. Mm. And it is also a huge leap of faith. It's a tremendous leap of faith, yeah. which is why so many of our faith stories are about people leaving one land and moving to another, right. starting with Abraham in our tradition, yeah. right? I mean, just yeah. the Lord summoning him. And so I think there is this experience of feeling summoned mm. or called out of our life. And, it's a, and, and it, it can happen externally. You know, it can be coming from the people and the communities around us. But just as often, it's internal, and it requires a stepping away from the the people who would prefer to have us stay where we are, um, and not because they don't love us, but because we are part of the homeostatic balance that is that particular you know culture. So I so I think that for me, when I think about the decisive moments in my life. The earliest ones and the most definitive for my personality were personal. It was very personal. Uh -huh. And it was uh, leaving one, you know, one place and going to another, leaving one set of parents, if you will, and, and moving to another, um, leaving a, a community, a faith community that gave me my first real conscious encounter with Christ, leaving that community and, and, and seeking another. Um, and so that's the formative piece. Now, there are... There are public implications for these. Every one of these has a public or a societal component, mm -hmm. but it doesn't negate the personal and how significantly we are shaped and formed by how those moments change us. You 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 kind of teed up uh, some one or, one or two of those moments. I think. Can you tell us more about one that you that you talk about in the book um, that was a personal? And maybe share how it was a societal or a social. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I start with the one that is that is my marking event, right? I, I speak of it often, and it's there's nothing more important to me in terms of how I understand how God is in my life. Uh -huh. But when my when I was 17, my um, my family life at the time just completely fell apart. It's a long and complicated story. But I I was living with my dad and my stepmother, and their marriage was disintegrating, and um, I had all sorts of reasons, um, external reasons to stay where I was, which was in Colorado. Uh -huh. I was part of a very close knit religious community, uh, at, at the church that had given me my, as I said, my first conscious experience of following Christ. Uh -huh. I was part of a high school that loved me. I was part of a social set of young Christians who had helped form me. Uh -huh. Um, and what I heard inside more than any, as clear as I heard, heard anything is that I cannot stay here. I cannot stay here. Uh -huh. And I, the call was to go back 
to live with my mother, uh-huh. whom I had left as a as a young girl. Uh-huh. Uh, to go, and it's a long, again, messy story. But okay. I, and the call was to go back and to live, live with her in her home, mm-hmm. to li- to go to her church, to take up my life in that world that I had rejected. Uh-huh. Okay. And um, and it was the it was the most up to that point the most difficult thing I had ever done. I thought I was sort of amputating a part of myself to survive. This was a survival instinct, um, and uh, but. It was also, I, I, I also knew spiritually that I was living in a world of cr- intense, devoted Christian community, mm-hmm. and I was feeling a growing dissonance in my own mind with how I was being taught about Jesus and about the faith, and what I intuitively, what I would say, knew in myself to be true. And I didn't have any desire to argue with people. Like these were people who were, I loved. This is the minister and his family who had taken me in and this community. But there was just a worldview that I couldn't reconcile. Oh. And so I just couldn't reconcile my under, my, I just couldn't do it. And I didn't really have the means or the energy to think about it very much, except to say, this isn't quite, I don't quite fit here. Uh-huh. And so, and part of the leaving was there was some relief actually, because I had a reason to leave something that I probably would have left in a far more, I don't know, explosive way uh-huh. if I had had to have done it on my own. I mean, you know, I, like I was being asked to go somewhere else, which gave me a different vantage point to understand Jesus, mm-hmm. to understand the church, to understand God's way in the world. And, um, and it was, I, you know, it was coming back. My mother was attending an Episcopal church at the time. And this pastor, this priest gave me permission to ask all sorts of questions that I wasn't able to ask before and to amplify my view. Now that's not, wasn't a societal transformation yet, but it placed me and, and the thing, and and for the thing that I want to stress here is that what made it the, the most, what made it a faith experience for me was I felt that God was calling me. And so I had to listen to the God speaking to my heart, mm-hmm. which was not the same as the religious authorities in my world. In other words, I was going against the adult figures in my, the spiritual authority figures in my life mm-hmm. who wanted me to stay and were worried that I was going to fall away from the faith, the correct faith, yeah. because my mother was not an acceptable Christian. Yeah. Um, that path, was we were on a path that was the correct path and 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 she wasn't right and the church that she belonged to wasn't and the family so do you hear what i'm saying yeah. that was the that was the shift and i knew that i was you know so, yeah, i i just don't believe that and so it was a real act of di- differentiation on my part so that that's the defining moment of my adult life yeah. right i've had, i've had others and i've had yeah. i've had others probably more consequential in terms of other things, but nothing shaped my faith journey more than now. There are other times, quite honestly, when I've, when the voice, I've had to temper the voice that I hear inside with the community, right? Right. And the community was the corrective. So I'm not, I'm not saying it was one or the other, but in that moment, that was the, and it was interesting. And I mentioned this in the book because I was at a, this was sort of bringing it into the, into the 21st century. I was, I was in a forum led by a rabbi in our community 
um, we were we were discussing Bruce, Bruce Filer, a noted author. He had written a book about life transitions. And he asked each one of us on this panel, this religious panel. So there was an imam and a rabbi and me um, and another um, a black evangelical pastor. And he asked us all to speak of a, a significant marking life transition, right, mm. that really made a difference in our lives. And everyone was, was all on Zoom. It was, this was back in the heat of the pandemic. And I so I spoke and I. I gave this example. And as soon as I started talking, I was looking at the screen. I saw these very sophisticated worldly leaders. And I thought, and I'm talking about being a teenager, you know, <laughs> leaving my mind, you know, and, 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 and then I stopped. And then each one of them did the exact same thing. Yeah. And the, and the imam talked about leaving. He was from Sudan and he talked about coming over to this country with his father mm. And his father had, was a renowned, very very prominent Muslim leader. And um, his father was coming over to this country for surgery. And he accompanied him. He accompanied his father as a young man. And all of the doctors who cared for his father were either Christian or Jewish. And they were treating his father with as much reverence as, they, as their own father. And he watched these people who he had been raised to distrust and to define himself against care for his father with such love and care. And in that, he says, that's what made me want to be an interfaith, to be a voice of interfaith cooperation, mm -hmm. right? You know, so those wow. moments really do have reverberating significance yeah. across a lifetime. And so to be able to look back over one's life and, and they do say that, you know, some of your early memories are the ones that imprint you, which is probably why some of our sacred stories imprint us. Mm -hmm. But then to see how those themes recur right. throughout life, how they how they circle back. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to do was to say, um, you know, there are sometimes when we're called to go, to be brave, to go out and, you know, and there's a lot of adrenaline and a lot of energy and, you know, obvious physical movement. But there are other times in life when the call is to do the exact opposite and to stay right where you are yeah. and to go deeper, to go deeper with the commitments that you've made. Or not, you know, not to be the one to leave, but the one to stay. Right. And that those moments can be equally, um, the experience of them can be as strong a crisis internally as the going. In other words, it's, it's, there's a lot of tension that builds or can build in the moments when you before leave. Now, do I go? Do I stay? Is this the time to go? Is this the time to stay? And to have that inner sense of the resolution being this is the time to stay. And so to reflect on the seismic implications that happen in the, the tiny ecosystem of a family and the global ecosystem of human community when certain people choose not to leave, but to stay. Uh -huh. And so, and in that, I know I talk about a few instances in my life, but I think the, the more interesting ones are the, the ones I cite Eleanor Roosevelt deciding to stay married to FDR early in their marriage when he had been unfaithful to her. Yeah. And if she had, and she, you know, and she, had she left him and she was ready to divorce him, his political life would have been over, right? It would have been over. And they went on to form this amazing marital partnership, right? They did. From, and, and in a way that, that, you know, because we didn't talk about these things in those years, but in a way that she decided to stay, but she stayed on her own terms, right? She redefined what her life was going to be and what her marriage was going to be and how they were going to go forward. Um, 
And that decision not only had implications for her, but for the world, right? right? right. For the world as they navigated this country through the Depression and World War II. Mm -hmm. Or our good friend and colleague, Kelly Brown Douglas, whom you and I have walked with as she has um, both personally and publicly tried to determine whether or not to stay yeah. in the church yeah. as a black woman and being constantly questioned by others. How can you stay right. in such a patriarchal, race, racist, you know, all of those things? And every time she comes to that question and that crisis point, yeah. she finds her reason to stay mm -hmm. and often in faithfulness to her ancestors who were such devout followers of Jesus at a time when they had no, no ability to see yeah. beyond the horizons of their life, right? And she feels this. So those are the things that I find to be so fascinating. And those don't make headlines. I mean, that's right. not the kind of thing that's gonna get you on a news cycle, that's, but that's the fabric of human community. What has been one moment in your life when, like Bishop Buddy, you discerned you were being called to step out, stand up, and take action that you were not anticipating? What did you learn from that experience, and how did it change you? Because I, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about different people in my own life, but but different people that I've known, and I, and I think of, of of a couple um, um, where one of the uh, uh, spouses um, has severe dementia, and and the other spouse had to make a decision with kids and family, what do we do? And was unable to continue right. to care for the, the his spouse at, at home, and it just was no longer possible, and and so. You know, had to place her in a context where she would be safe and and all of that. Mm -hmm. All the decision, and yet every day, <laughs> and this is somebody every out, day, every day, going and spending time with his wife, and right. Um, and I, I don't remember where he didn't say this, but I heard another or read about someone else that said, "Why do you go see your spouse when he or she doesn't know you?" He said, "The question is not." whether she knows me, but I know who she is. Right. But that's, right. dear God, that's what you're talking about. That's, 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 brave. that's courage to decide against what your heart doesn't want you to do. You know what I mean? That, that's, and you gotta I listen do. to other people. That's bravery. That's what you're talking about. It's, so Mike, I got a question though. Can you cultivate that or do you just have it or you don't, you know what I mean? And if he can cultivate it or nurture it or encourage it or something, how do you do that? Because it sure is worth doing if it can be done. Some of it's formative that's beyond your control. It's how you were shaped and formed. But are there ways that you can nurture that or cultivate it? Or I don't know what the right words are. Well, um, it's a great question. I I used the I think cultivate is a is a is another way of say of learning right that this is a learning process uh -huh. and as with any learning process there is trial and error and there are times when we fail uh -huh. um, there are times when we are called to something and we 
we can't rise to it. Yeah. Um, and and we learn from that. Um, one of the th- you know, so I would say yes, we can cultivate it, and I think life cultivates it in us if we pay attention. You do have to pay attention. There is an intentionality to it. Uh-huh. Um, so I I don't I don't think you can. In my experience, I, 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 there is a there is a call to intense self awareness and self reflection, and uh-huh. and also allowing people to give you know to just let life teach you these things. But I do spend a fair amount of time in one of the chapters talking about failure um, and disappointment uh, as a way of acknowledging that we don't always get this right, whatever that we don't we don't always meet these moments with the the kind of wholeheartedness that you're describing as the, this person visiting mm. his wife you know sometimes we really fall flat yeah. on our on our faces in this but those moments are are instructive as well um and and that they you know obviously they teach us humility and they teach us compassion and, and all of those things but maybe in other ways they prepare us for the next time it comes around yeah. right because these is it just keeps on coming around and um and in the um, and in the chapter where I talk about, I, I call it stepping up to the plate, which is which is a metaphor that came. It's obviously a baseball metaphor, but it, it came to me in this in the season of COVID when it was before the vaccine, before we had vaccines, right? So it was when we were all still um, living pretty much in isolation, and 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 every decision was fraught with that kind of intensity about the fear of getting sick and dying and our institutions were stressed. Um, and it was also, we were leading up to a presidential election, everything, everyone was just completely on edge every, and there was just this time in my life when it felt like for like every day I was getting a request for some form of assistance and not just financial assistance, although there was certainly that, but financial assistance, or could I help out with something, or could I speak to this thing, or could I do that? You know, there's one after another, and some of them were relatively small in terms of they didn't take a lot of energy for me, and others really, you know, this was like if I said yes to this, this was gonna, this was gonna take time, effort, and cost me, right? And I remember feeling tired, and I remember feeling um, all those feelings, right? And it occurred to me that how I felt in that moment wasn't actually the most important thing that this was a time when I was in a position where I had things to offer and it was time for me just to step up to the yeah. plate and swing. Like it was my turn at bat yeah. and it didn't really matter how I felt. It didn't really matter. Um, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a superhero. I mean, obviously I'm mortal. I had to get sleep and you know, all of those things, but it was like, it was like, just say yes and do it. Just show up and do it because right now everyone is pushed to the max. Yeah. And, why would you think that, you you know, you just have to do it? So there was this sense of like, okay. And I thought, I think about there are times when we're called to step up to the plate in whatever part of life. And we have everything we need to do it. In fact, we are itching to get up to the plate and do it. We're just ready, ready. to. So I started thinking, okay, so when in scripture, when in life are people given that moment, like here it is, I've been waiting my entire life for this moment, right? That's an exhilarating experience. But on the other side of the experiential spectrum are those times when we the call is equally strong and we are not ready and we do not have what it takes. And it doesn't seem to matter that we're still, it's still our turn, right? And sometimes we make our offering and like Jesus and the loaves and fishes, God makes a miracle and we just sure. sit there and give God the glory, right? And allow other people to think we had something to do with it. 
But other times <laughs> that miracle doesn't happen, right? Yeah. And we just fail and we fail spectacularly, right? Yeah. And it's like, okay, pick yourself up. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the growth process. Maybe that will help us the next time around. And then the other time, and this is actually my favorite because um, it's like my, this is my daily life. Sometimes I feel like the call is to do something that's calling me out of myself. And it's, I'm so grateful in a sense because I've been on one of those downward spirals of self-pity or depression or, you know, just stuckness, right? You know, whatever it is I'm dealing with in my own life. And I'm given an invitation to think about something for somebody else, right? I'm given, I'm actually being called out of the sort of miry contradiction of my, you know, just the, the mundane reality of my life that is not going very well. Yeah. And the invitation comes, why don't you go to, and it's like, okay. And often I don't want to do it because I'm feeling so, you know, blah. Uh -huh. But once I get there, it's like, oh, thank God I could, you know, I could just, be in another place, being of use to something else yeah. doesn't change the mess of my life that I'll eventually have to go back to, right? And that's when you feel like, okay, God really does call upon us sometimes when we are the least, when we're just not our best selves, right? And it doesn't seem to matter. And so I, I use Jacob, you know, our, our patriarch Jacob as an example, because God just seemed to call on him all the time. And, and Jacob was just hardly an exemplary human being, right? But he just, you know, just God just keeps tapping him on the shoulder. And I think, okay, then, you know, so I just feel like there are lots of ways we can experience this. And, and that's what I wanted, Presiding Bishop. I just wanted people to know that we all, these, these moments come to us yeah. and we, we rise to them as best we can. And over the course of a lifetime, we learn. We can learn yeah. and trust that um, all, all of our lives, every moment has its own decisive quality. Some that some can see, some that are hidden to us. In those long stretches when nothing seems to be happening, there may be a lot going on underneath the surface that is getting ready, right? Or we're in a season where it's time simply to be and pay attention, to to cultivate skill, to, you know, to do all those things that you never have time for, but now maybe you can do, which will prepare you. Yeah. For for the next for the next season, and I, I you know I'm in at a stage in my life now where I'm mentoring a fair number of younger people who sometimes feel restless for the next thing. And I, I remember that feeling and, and I, 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 I'm just curious sometimes like, well, what can they do right now where they are that will help them get ready for the, for the call to prepare? Yeah. Cause you know, once, when the moment comes, you don't get to, you know, you don't get to take your crash course and whatever you need at that moment. That moment is when you, when you're called upon, right? Just that moment. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember I had a spiritual director. Um, you, you reminded me of this spiritual director who used to say, um, when I screwed up, when I fessed up, that I had actually screwed up something. And uh, took a while before I would like spill my guts about it. But but when I finally did, and she would say, so so what did you learn from that? Yeah. Which just completely yeah. upended all that self-loathing and oh man, I screwed up. I'm no good. I'm no. It was like and, right. What did you learn from that? There's what did that. you learn from and that's that? That's what I hear you say. Yeah. You know, what do you, you know, what did you, <laughs> what did you learn? What did you learn? Um, my spiritual director often says, how is God stretching your heart? Oh, right. Yeah. And, and that for me is a really helpful um, when I, when I'm struggling, like how is God, how might God be helping to stretch your heart? 
and um, and I do believe that part of the call now is to be come large enough inside that we can weather some of the really big storms yeah. and um, and the waves and the ebbs and flow and and to you know and to ride them out when we have to because there's you know we just have to ride them out yeah. but also allow for the the faith that says you can you can take this you can you can hold this even if it knocks you down for a while you can you have a container inside by grace that can help you carry this uh it it, it takes courage i mean it, it, it's it's sometimes it's a huge just holding on to with faith but this idea of um no moment lasts forever no season lasts forever yeah. And learn, you know, so you learn in retrospect from the things that were so disorienting or painful. Um, and then how might that be of use as you go forward? Here's a question. What's the difference between bravery, bravery and my ego? And, and what I'm thinking of is the times when I've been brave or sought to be brave. And it was coming out of a place, not out of healthy discontent, and you might even use the word anger, but a toxic place. You, you know what I mean? You said I'm getting that because I could be brave and be mean. Mm -hmm. And what's the mm -hmm. difference? How do you sort that out? I, I, I certainly know what you're talking about. And that's part of what I, I was trying to say about it's possible to get addicted to the spotlight. Yeah. It's possible to get addicted to the, or the adrenaline, uh, or the sense of, um, being at the center of something or being the, um, or the role. And I, I deal with it all the time. Yeah. Um, some kind of, my ego gets in the way all the time. Um, but I would say that the difference is one of the markers that I've experienced is that there's almost always a sacrificial component to the kinds of courage that God calls us to. Uh -huh. There's a, there's a crucifying element to it. Um, there's something that is asked of us that feels a bit like death, um, and, and not always, but often. And for me, when I ex and, and and grief, there's a lot of there's yeah. a lot of grief in this in this work. And and one of my chapters is about grief and, and learning to accept the things that we would never choose, and what it is that we learn from acceptance. And how acceptance, which doesn't mean acceptance like accepting this that it will never change, but accepting that this is what we're dealing with, yeah. right? And right. uh, this is what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so I can't deny this reality either within myself or in the world or in this relationship or in this configuration, right? This is it. Um, and there's grief in that. That's one of the markers. Uh -huh. um, and then the other is usually when it's when we're ego driven. Um, not always, but often what happens to me is that's when I fail. You know, that's yeah. when I get in the way and it's embarrassing. I mean, it's really embarrassing. In fact, it's humiliating. Um, and that, um, so that's a, <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. Oh yeah. You know, I, oh yes. Have, so have I, so have I. And I actually, I, I have this one example and it, it, it was really instructive early on because I was, I, I had a few, it wasn't often, but. I'm a pr I'm pretty good on my feet sometimes, not always, but pretty good on my feet. And I I can I can piece a sentence or two together, and I can do righteous indignation in a way that people find compelling sometimes. And so, you know, in my years in Minnesota, every once in a while, when I was doing faith based organizing as a parish priest, I would like I would get a lot of like, wow, we should get her in front of it. Let's put this girl in front of a mic, right? Yeah. And so, um, 
And and so I would do that. We'd you know do all the preparation and stuff. And then every once in a while, I'd be asked to do the same thing for something I knew nothing about or that I was totally unprepared for. But I said yes anyway because I was that you know, I was that person. And they were calling on me, and I just fell. And it was so. And I learned, it's like, that's when you're being used for other people's agendas, yeah. right? Yeah. Or when, at least in my case, I say yes to things that I have no business saying yes to because I don't know what the heck I'm talking about, right? But um, but I get caught up in the, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so, but that's, I think that's a particular, um, it's a particular uh, path of sin for those of us who are called to public leadership. Yeah. Um, it is. Um and we have to be careful. The other side is equally dangerous, however, which is false humility or a, um, you know, oh, no, I can't do that. You know, like there are times when you don't. In other words, I think God works with our ego, too, sometimes, yeah. you know, like that's also part of the raw material that God works with. Yeah. And and sometimes, I, you know, there are times I get up in the pulpit, like Easter Sunday, last, you know, last Easter Sunday, here I am, you know, Washington National Cathedral. I, I have no idea if my sermon is any good or not. I think it's okay. But, you know, I've been yeah. all of that ego and I just have to walk up those steps and say, OK, Lord, you, you know it all. You, you've got it yeah. all right. You've got yeah. you've got everything in me right now. And these words and it's what I've got. And my grandma used to say, take it to the Lord and leave it there. <laughs> I want to say one more thing before we stop, because this is really important to me. One of the other reasons I wrote this book was I wanted to describe authentic spiritual experience in a way that people who don't necessarily identify with a faith tradition could understand. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to describe Jesus mm -hmm. particularly and his life and his and the people informed and influenced by him or other other faiths. But as a Christian, I know this one best in such a way that people could say, oh, that's what that's yeah. about. I wanted to tell some of the stories of our faith in a way that isn't about this man who lived 2000 years ago, but how that the stories as they take up residence inside us become vehicles for the Holy Spirit to work mm. because we have we have a framework that allows us to say, yeah, this feels like Jesus calling Simon out of the boat into onto the water, right? Uh -huh. This feels like the little boy offering his loaves and fish, even though he knew it wasn't enough, right? This, this is what it feels like when God summons us out of a place of familiarity to the unknown. Or this is what it feels like when we're called to suffer and that there's a possibility of redemption in it. You know, I just wanted people to hear it in such a way that even if you weren't, even if you never became a follower of Jesus, you would understand a little bit why some of us do and why this tradition can have such transformative power in spite of all the ways that we human beings can mess it up, right? Yeah. I just, just wanted to do that for the people in my life that I think about that always wonder, like, what is it about? Why do you do this? You know, and and I know that that's something that matters to you, too. And I yeah. I hope that I've done that. I hope I've I hope I've honored that part of who we of who of him and how mm. how he calls us to this um, and honors us in our efforts to follow with such good intentions and imperfection, you know? Bishop Marianne, buddy, I told you earlier, I was gonna ask you one last question. Yeah. Some words that were blessing for us. 
and you just did. Mm-hmm. You just thank did. You. Thank you for that. And thank you for the blessing of this book, How We Learn to Be Brave. And the subtitle is? Decisive Moments in Life and Faith. God love you, my friend. God bless. And thank you for blessing. Thank you, Presiding Bishop. Thank you. Thank you so much. And everybody else, God love you. God bless you. And keep the faith. Learn more about the way of love and create your own rule of life based on the practices of turn, learn, pray, worship, bless, go, and rest. And check out Bishop Buddy's book, How We Learn to Be Brave, Decisive Moments in Life and Faith, online or at your favorite independent bookstore. The Way of Love podcast executive producer is Jeremy Tackett. Our podcast engineer is Ellie Singer. Research and guest relations are managed by Amanda Skofsted, and our project manager is Chris Sigma. I'm Michael Curry, and I'll see you next time on The Way of Love. God love you.